Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curve, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curve. Thanks for that, Polly. Well, keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight, we've got my panel, the writer and broadcaster, Dominique Samuels, and Jeevan Sander, the economist at King's College London. Good evening to both of you. And you know the drill on Jubes and Co. by now, don't you? It's not just about us here. It's about you at home as well. What is on your mind tonight? You can get in touch with me with all your thoughts on all the stories, or any of your thoughts, quite frankly, that you seem to have tonight. Uh, GBviews at gbnews.uk is the email address. You can tweet me as well, at Michelle Jubes or at gbnews. I must apologise, by the way, on the start of this programme, because, listen, I've got the most squeakiest chair. I don't know if that's going to translate to you at home, but it is driving me bonkers. I'm going to switch it uh, in the first break. So if you're hearing a really squeaky sound, uh, I do apologise. It's my bottom on this chair, and I'll get it sorted out in the next break. Um, so, as a reminder, in case you've just tuned in, the topics we'll be getting into tonight, the NHS, we can go around and around and around on that one, can't we? What are the answers? This time, its workforce is under the focus. We just don't have enough staff. Um, so that's topic number one. Topic number two I want to get into is Stonewall. Uh, if you're not on Twitter, you probably missed uh, what I'm talking about. But at the weekend, they were suggesting that two-year-olds are basically aware of their trans identity and that perhaps it's time for nursery schools to start being slightly more inclusive uh, with their materials. As a mum to a two-year-old, this story concerns me no end. Uh, and I just want to get into that and have that debate about whether or not this is a good trend or something to be avoided. And I also want to ask you as well about working class MPs. Does it matter whether or not MPs are from the working class or not? Just 7% of overall MPs are from a working class background. You tell me your thoughts on all of that. But let's start tonight, shall we, with the uh, report from the NHS. The study for the uh, House of Commons Health and Social Care Committee says that the NHS is facing, I quote, the greatest workforce crisis in its history, which is putting patients and staff at serious risk. The report found that more than 62,000 positions in England are currently unfulfilled, uh, and there are 700 less full-time GPs than this time three years ago. There's also been a bit of criticism that the government apparently does not have a credible strategy to tackle the problem. Jeevan Sandra, I'll come back to you mm. first on this one. I mean, every day almost we have a conversation about the NHS. Mm. We never really seem to fix the problem, seeing we just go round in circles. Focusing on this workforce uh, one in particular, what do you think to it all? Yeah, I think this is a problem of pay. We've seen nurses since 2010 have paid cuts of about £2,500, over 40,000 nursing vacancies now, maybe even as high as 50,000. If we aren't paying our public sector staff enough, it costs us all. We don't have people to look after us in our hospitals, widely as well, teaching our schools or police on our streets. This is an issue, a part of funding problem. And one of the other problems we've had over the past decade is that actually whilst our funding as a percentage of our economy has remained the same, we have an ageing population as well, and also an economy that hasn't been growing. So just less money going in there and less funding. And more broadly as well, some real societal problems that lean to this point. You know, when there are too many people who need a food bank, 
that hits their healthcare. If you can't afford to heat your home, that hits your healthcare. And on the top of that, of course, waiting lists now over six million and less than three quarters of people in A&E being seen within four hours. I mean, we all know the stories. We all know people who have gone to A&E, who can't get GP appointments, who can't get their hospital treatment when they need it. It's clear funding is a part of that, but also this, it's not just about the NHS, it's also how wider society is doing. I think that's also a reflection of where we are at the moment. So one of your primary solutions to this would be pay them more. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, Dominique, where do you stand on it all? I think the problem with the NHS stems from largely a lack of bravery from politicians, and I think that's because the NHS is has turned almost into a religion that cannot be criticised. I think there are some fundamental structural problems with the NHS that need to be addressed, because although, um, I don't know, people like to criticise the Tories when it comes to funding, but... You know, there have been record level funding increases for the NHS in recent years. I would agree that I don't think the conditions um, for low level workers are good enough. I, I don't think so at all. And I don't think the government has actually made um, enough effort to both recruit new staff and retain those staff. Um, but at the same time, there's a clear problem of the NHS not being able to meet growing demand, whether that be um, as our population grows, whether that be as our population ages, and whether that be as the needs of our population in terms of their healthcare changes. And in terms of how to sort of address the situation, as I said before, I do think there needs to be more bravery. Maybe looking at, I mean, this is gonna be controversial, but maybe looking at different ways the NHS can function, perhaps looking at more of um, a French system. Um, the French healthcare system is one of the best in the world. It's been ranked the best in the world by numerous bodies. And the system that they have is a part um, insurance-based system that is mostly government subsidised. So we do have private um, healthcare companies in this country. To maybe spread out that demand, perhaps the government could subsidise um, private healthcare for people who aren't able to access that care as quickly that they need on the NHS. I mean, Dominique says it's potentially controversial to have conversations about whether or not uh, the NHS should be in its current form. Its current form is described as being free at the point of use. Mm. I mean, I would dispute that because it's not free. It's paid for by national insurance contributions, but let's park that for a second. Um, do you think there's any merit in kind of looking at should, it, should the NHS continue as it is, as a so-called free at the point of use? Are there um, opportunities here for elements of it to be privatised in some way? I definitely wouldn't agree with the privatisation angle of it. Well, the problem with private insurance, as far as you get it, is your risk pool ends up being not very good. So who is it gets private insurance? People who kind of can afford it and those who are kind of need it, i.e. who have greater needs, will be locked out of that system. I would also say here, in the UK, before 2010, we did have an NHS that was functioning. We had record low waiting times. We had hospitals being built. We have an NHS, NHS in this country that has been functioned, has functioned well in the past. The, my problem is over the past decade, clearly, and it's not just the cuts to the NHS, it's also wider society. And Dominique is right, by the way, to talk about how, for example, we saw record increases. But part of the reason we needed that was because we had such low increases beforehand. And an ageing population, I entirely agree with you, an ageing population, and especially those who now, you know, we're talking about privatisation, one thing that also worries me is the amount of people going to problem debt because they're having to fund out-of-pocket health insurance, in particular as well, those are the lowest income. I think it's a real problem. I think if you had a flexible system whereby those that uh, have enough income to more the, to pay for their health care 
go out two times over, mm. they shouldn't be able to use the NHS. Those that physically cannot afford it should be able to either have the NHS free at the point of use or those on middle income, say, for example, should have um, their health care partly subsidised by the government. And it works in France. Um, I have um, a friend who lives, who's lived in France his um, whole life. He's here, but he lived there since he was um, a child, basically. And comparably, the healthcare system in France, in his opinion, is far better than the NHS. Even here, I, I, I can't get an appointment. And yes, I think that's partly to do with government, but I think it's partly to do with the intrinsic issues with the NHS that simply can't be sustained and we need to be able to have an honest conversation about ways that we can change it. Unfortunately, no politician is really brave enough to have that conversation. It's either, you know, we've done all this funding, so stop complaining, we can't afford a pay rise, or we're just going to throw more money at it, and that clearly isn't solving the issue. I will say, if we do have this, because also at the moment you can have private insurance if you want to have private insurance. People in the UK do have it, people do get treated privately. Harley Street, I hear, has got some fancy, like, medical places. But even if we were to do that, and I don't think it's a good idea, it wouldn't solve the A&E waiting time problem. It wouldn't solve the other issues we have. And also, if you're someone who can't get a GP appointment at the moment, again, this, this won't solve the problem you have. The problem you have is there aren't enough doctors and there aren't enough nurses. And there aren't enough of the capacity, but we absolutely need to go forward and get there. So let me just uh, question this, <laughs> because this whole sentiment of there, there's not enough um, this, there's not enough that, there's not enough the other... One of my uh, concerns in some of this is that qualified healthcare professionals are choosing for financial reasons, let's be mm. blunt, to either leave the NHS and enter into the private sector or leave the NHS and enter into locum work. Um, when I say locum work, by the way, in just in case you're not familiar, what I'm basically saying is essentially like a, a freelance member of staff. You're basically going into the service uh, when it's got a, a, a staff shortage. That's what I mean when I say locum. Um, and I worry, Jeevan, that mm. people, qualified people, are choosing this route for financial mm. gain, and that is then leaving the service, the NHS service, suffering. So I ponder, should we get really tough in terms of locum rules? Because people are earning over £1,000 a day. Mm. Is it time to start saying, right, if you want to go to locum, it's not a career choice for you, you can only do... I don't know, just say one locum shift a month. Mm. So the problem with the locum system is that actually it's kind of a legacy of there not being enough, right? Because if there were enough doctors and nurses, you don't need locum staff to come in and kind of do that, as it were. Those doctors and nurses who do work in the NHS, like, they're well aware of the fact that, well, my lots of friends and who are both doctors and nurses, um, they're there to serve the NHS, right? They're there to do it. And when they have done locuming in the past, it's always been like a stepping stone between things or they needed to pick up some extra shifts for whatever reason. But I'm but questioning they... whether or not that mindset has changed because I don't, mm. I don't disagree with you. I think many people have gone into the NHS to do good, whatever. But I think now that there are these kind of bells, financial incentive uh, bells ringing in people's ears. Mm. If you come and join my agency, you can earn all of this money. You look at your wage slip, you go, hang on a second, why should I work full time for this when actually I could go over here, earn this per day, and at some point in the future go back to the full time role if I choose to? You don't get any progression in that side either, though. So, for example, if you start as a junior doctor and you locum, you can't uh, progress to being a consultant. You're stuck at that particular rung and you're, you're in it forever. So, like, I also think that the reason, again, the reason why we need locus is because we just don't have enough... Even if tomorrow, if we were to scrap all this, the scrap locum, let's say we do that, we'd still have 40,000 nursing vacancies. And even then, I don't think there's anything necess necessarily wrong 
with someone wanting to do that type of work because of that financial incentive. I think, you know, look, being a nurse or a doctor, it is more of a vocation than a career that you seek to benefit from financially. But at the same time, as individuals and as human beings, we are motivated by incentive. One of the biggest things that we need in society, everyone, is money. So I don't. I think it's entirely human to be motivated by financial incentive. If you've spent all of that money getting an education, working night and day to get that education and to be qualified, I think you have every right to want to work flexibly because you have those qualifications. Um, the problem is really is not an honest conversation about the NHS and, and how it should be restructured. And yeah. See, what do you think to my uh, little idea? And as I've said, Rishi and Liz can have that. You can have this one on me. Um, I think it'd be a vote winner, actually, if I say so myself. I would say that there's some things in this country that are far more important than any other political party. Mm. Uh, one of the things is the NHS. And, Dominique, you say about it being... It's almost a religion. There's no almost about it. It has become, over years, decades, whatever, you, it, it's this kind of holy thing that you can't criticise, you can't seek to fundamentally reform. Even my little idea is take it out of um, the current political system, create a cross-party uh, group, its own kind of cross-party budget, whatever you want to call the words, I don't know, um, and say, right, we're going to do a 10-year strategy. It's irrespective... You, you can't alter it if you then come into power, whoever you are. It's outside of the political system. I suppose what do you do when, for example, so now the pay deal for the Conservatives is going to be 5%. I'm assuming if Labour and government, it would be much higher. But the problem is they have That's real... That's part of the strategy that you agree at the outset. So when you're doing your, co your cross-party stuff and we're setting up this entity, which is the NHS or the new mm -hmm. healthcare system, whatever you want to call it, things like peer reviews, etc. They're built in stone. You'd figure that out when you're setting it up. But then why, to... would there, why would there be a consensus? Because at the end of it, you could have this, this commission, but then there wouldn't be a consensus because the difference between the parties would end up being too great and it would be you... too difficult for I them to agree. I think you could find, find a consensus because when the NHS was created, yes, it's mostly a Labour idea, but there was... Um, a cross-party consensus on, on how it should be run um, and it being created in the first place. But I think the issue with it is that if you set ideas like that in stone um, about, say, pay increases, for example, or funding um, on a yearly basis, you then can't respond adequately to um, changes that are perhaps outside Parliament's control, for example, um, economic changes, Weather disasters, but you'd have a process for that. Disasters. You'd have your business as usual process, then you'd have your exception process. So if there was, I don't know, say a pandemic, if there was whatever, you'd have exceptional. You'd have a, a process that you'd use to manage that. What I'm saying is, one of the challenges for me is that it's stuck as a political football within the political system. So now you've got Rishi and Liz talking about, oh, this is what I'm going to do when I come into the office, into office for two years. And then the next person's going to come along at 2024 and go, oh, this is what we're going to do for the next five years. Mm. Then this is what we're going to do for the next five years. And it's all a little bit ludicrous, really, because you need long-term strategies that are not politically... Uh, impacted. But why would they want to change? Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but th this is interesting because wh why would either party actually want to change that? Because the NHS in itself has sort of 
like you said, has become a religion. It's sort of a way for politicians on either side of the political aisle to participate in moral grandstanding because of the nature of what the NHS is. This idea that, it, you know, it's free healthcare, you don't have to pay for this, it's, you know, the kind government giving it to you and you should be so, so grateful for it. So I think, realistically, no politician on either side of the aisle would want to lose that opportunity to morally grandstand, and that's probably why we won't ever really go to an insurance-based system, which I think would be better comparable to what we have at the moment, because there's too many political opportunities that they would lose. I suppose also we should... We shouldn't be... I know we denigrate politics a lot. We do it all the time, right? But we shouldn't denigrate politics. We should, we should uh, welcome the disagreement. We should say to each other, people have fundamentally different ideas about the NHS. The Conservative Party is one idea, the Labour Party is another idea. But I think you're right, of course, in terms of we need better long-term planning. What I'm actually saying is, in one sense, we have one consensus, right? And that consensus is the free at the point of use consensus. So there is like, in one sense, there is like a non-political kind of foundation, but the rest of it, I suppose, we're always going to I don't even have a consensus with that, actually, across the board, because mm. there should be some things that are... And I do, I use this free at the point of use. Uh, it, it's not free. You know, unless you've just been born, then it's free to you, because you've never made a national in uh, insurance contribution in your life. But if you're a 60-year-old guy, mm -hmm. and I don't know, you break your leg or whatever, you're not getting free care. You're getting care that you've contributed throughout your entire working life to receive um, so uh, what I would say is some aspects should be mm -hmm. paid for with national insurance, Jeevan, but then I would have a huge conversation, a proper conversation about what you want your NHS to be, because at the moment it's been all things to all people, and it shouldn't be. So you can have your free services over there, but when you start bordering into certain services, there should be fees paid to that, uh, chargeable for that. Professor Stephen, what's his surname, Smith, he uh, today was suggesting following a partial German system, which is you pay up to £8 a night to be in hospital. What would you think to that? Would you be willing to pay to be in hospital? I would also, by the way, introduce charges for missed appointments as well. That would soon sort people out, wouldn't it? Because a lot of the problems in the NHS are people just not attending the appointments that they're supposed to. Um, Karen says, Michelle, you could stop making nursing a degree course. It should be a vocation, not a high-perks job, Chris says. Please, can we stop throwing money at the NHS? You've got all of these diversity jobs. What a waste of money. I won't open that can of worms again, because I know you debated that when I was off, didn't you? Uh, Carol says, I've recent re recently retired from the NHS as a registered nurse for about 50 years. It's not more money that's needed in the NHS. It's root and branch overhaul of management. The waste in the NHS, Carol says, is phenomenal. Uh, Linda says, we shouldn't even call it the NHS. It's become the international health service. Everyone seems able to use it these days. Uh, Ian says, the NHS, just one more legacy mess that your friend Michelle Boris has left us with. Um, Terry says, the NHS has plenty of staff, but just the wrong kind. You can't treat and cure people by pushing a pen around. Um, Irene says, I've seen quite a lot of discussions on your channel about the NHS, Michelle. Why is it never mentioned about, about the amount of patients sent to private treatments at hospitals for treatments? Mm. Well, I think, yeah. By the way, I'll tell you what's not often talked about is the fact that everybody uh, that was going on about lockdowns all the time to protect the NHS, where are all those people now? Because um, many of their policies didn't protect the NHS at all. Uh, it created carnage in it, carnage that we're seeing now and we will be seeing for a long time. But guess what? I suspect there'll be even disagreements on that.
Hello there, I'm Michelle Dubry. This is Jubes & Co. Keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight. We've got the writer and broadcaster, Dominique Samuels, and the economist at King's College London, Jeevan Sander. Good evening to both of you. Uh, lots of you guys getting in contact about that last topic we just did, uh, which was the NHS and how on earth we're going to fix it. I don't mean to be too pessimistic, but I don't see it being fixed anytime soon. I worry, quite frankly, that we're going to be having these uh, conversations for years and years and years to come. Uh, one of the comments here was that it's kind of started going wrong in 2010. That was Jeevan. Uh, you brought that up at the start of the conversation. But, you know, I can remember winter crises and all the rest of it going back years and years and years, not just in this government. So I worry, uh, so I do, ladies and gentlemen, that we're never really going to get to the heart of it. You tell me, though. Are you a little bit more optimistic than me? Have you got a bit more positivity about you when it comes to the NHS? You tell me. GBviews at gbnews.uk is the email. Right, uh, let's talk about a topic that concerned me personally uh, and lots of others, I have to say, over the weekend. Uh, the charity Stonewall, you'll be familiar with that, I'm sure. Uh, well, this weekend they claimed that children as young as two can basically tell whether or not they're transgender. Uh, as a result of that, Stonewall were calling upon nurseries and schools to introduce what they call LGBTQ+, uh, inclusive and affirming education, which they say, I quote, is crucial for the well-being of all young people. Uh, there you go. I'm just showing you that tweet directly, just so that you can read that for yourselves on the screen. It says that research suggests that children as young as two recognise their trans identity, yet many nurseries and schools teach a binary understanding of pre-assigned gender. LGBTQ inclusive and affirming education is crucial for the well-being of all young people. Well, quite frankly, I've got a two-year-old child. Pretty much uh, the only thing that he can recognise with any form of continuity is where the snack cupboard is, mm -hmm. uh, which is pretty <laughs> annoying, I've got to say. But, Dominique, on a serious level, um, this is something that really, as a mum of a two-year-old, it does concern me. Um, where do you stand on it all? I think these people are dangerous. Which, um, who's these frankly, people? The people... Um, within Stonewall, organisations like Stonewall that receive taxpayer-funded cash, I think these types of people are dangerous. The ideologies that they spew are extreme, not really founded in any sort of scientific reality. And the fact that they want to then push that extreme ideology um, onto children is concerning. And I think the people perpetuating this narrative shouldn't be anywhere near children. Um, might sound harsh, but I'm sorry, it's the truth. The idea that a two-year-old has any clue about whether or not they're trans, let alone complex topics such as gender and sex, is quite frankly ludicrous. I have um, a two-year-old niece as well, she was just with me this weekend. It's completely bonkers to suggest she has any idea about gender identity and sex. So why are grown adults pushing their own extreme beliefs onto children? Um, there was a story recently um, about Girl Guides publishing um, an interview with, pa with two parents who um, had um, a child, five-year-old child, that started identifying um, as a girl. Now, that child has decided to refer to themselves as Rainbow. That's their female name. Don't mean to be harsh here, but anyone with half a brain cell would understand that even choosing a name such as Rainbow suggests that these are childish fantasies and childish delusions. It may be that when they grow up, they may still feel as though they're, they're in the wrong body. But as a child, adults should not be entertaining this and then responding with things like puberty blockers and gender reassignment surgery. It's child abuse. Where do you stand on it, Jeevan? 
Well, I remember when I was, my brother was three years old, they dressed him up as a girl for the school nativity. But anyway, well, the family nativity, rather. Is he Mary? He was, uh, so he was a family play and they dressed him up as a girl. And I wonder how much he would have known at that age but not he was being dressed up as a girl or as a boy. I think actually we accept one of the great things about, about Britain and the way that we've come and the way we've come forward is how accepting and tolerant we are of people. I'm sure both of you have maybe different views, but also you both accept and, and respect trans people. We expect they are of part of our society. I think it's very difficult to be a trans person. I couldn't imagine it being so. I wonder, I mean, I have no idea about, you know, what children do and do not know. What I do know is that we kind of want to be respecting and affirming and inclusive of those children when they do come around. I suppose when children are young, we also teach them about, you know, um, those who are gay and bisexual as well. I suppose the question is when and how are we doing these things? And I think that's what we still have to explore and see where we end up at. Yeah, see, I'll tell you what concerns me about mm. this as a mum to a little two-year-old myself. Um, so you're absolutely right, completely respectful. Mm. I'm completely respectful of uh, trans people and I actually feel uh, sorry for them often because this conversation seems to happen about them. Mm. And I, there's something quite unedifying about this. But what I feel very strongly is that most trans people want to be left alone, leave me alone, let me get on with my life, you know, whatever. It's the organisations, it's the activist groups mm. that are doing this, creating a division, sowing a divide, so that they themselves can swoop in and profiteer off the back of this. Mm. Oh, you know, there's this situation uh, with trans... Oh, dear, dear nurseries, allow me to come in and show you the courses that I've developed to give to your children. Oh, workforces, allow me to create this index that I've created so you can mark yourself and here's some training. And I actually, I do think it's dangerous because the article that you read, when you read the article that the Stonewall tweet refers to, it's about a four-year-old, this article, and the four-year-old, the parent uh, has written this, the parent is a trans uh, woman uh, themselves, and they're writing about this four-year-old, that the first time this four-year-old girl said that she was a boy, and I'm quoting directly, it came unprompted, bubbling from somewhere pure and certain inside of her. My husband and I took to asking whether she felt like a boy or a girl or neither, to let her know we were listening and keeping tabs on any progress either way. I marvelled at how self-assured she already is. So then it goes on because the nursery basically wasn't uh, aligned with some of this and this parent was saying uh, how concerned they were. And I worry about this, Jeevan, because... Mm. This poor child, you know, one minute she's saying I'm a boy, tomorrow she's probably saying she's a unicorn, the next day if she's anything like my kid she'll probably think she's a flapjack or at least want to be. <laughs> um, and that's just part of being a child. Mm. And when you start saying to this child, well, actually, are you a boy or neither or are you a girl, you're planting in this child an ideology that's based often on a fallacy because biological sex is real... I'm very conscious I'm speaking at you, I'm ranting. <laughs> I'm ranting everyone. And I'm sorry, I will pause for breath and shut up in a second and let you respond, but I just feel like we're planting this ideology into these children's minds in order to be kind while disrespecting basic, simple facts. So, I, I mean, I'm not there with the, the parent of this child, I don't know. I suppose this child also could change their mind very easily and very much so. I have no... One thing I find very difficult personally about this is that I have no idea, I can't imagine the experience of being transgender and I can't imagine if I was transgender when I would have first known about it. And I, I can see the, the worries and the concerns, but I, 
I honestly don't know. And I don't know what it would mean to be a transgender child or when those things, or when you start to have those feelings or start to move towards it. And in this case, look, um, it's very possible that this child either does or does not end up becoming a transgender adult. I have no idea. The child won't, because a lot of the time, gender dysphoria is triggered by a range of other things, especially for children as well. It might be um, emotional problems that they're having, problems with their um, identity growing up. It might be family issues. Um, there was one story of a child who um, was convinced that they were a girl, and it turned out that began when they began having sessions with a therapist. It turned out that this was actually triggered by the fact that um, their parents had always wanted a girl, so therefore felt as though they had to live up to their parents' expectations. A lot of the time, there are other things going on. Not every single child that expresses um, an interest in things that are normally attributed to the opposite sex means that they're transgender. And sometimes it may be that those children also then grow up, grow up to be gay or lesbian. And there's a very big difference between that and simply believing um, you're a different sex altogether. And I think we tend to forget that as well. Expressing interest in things that are attributed to another gender doesn't mean you're transgender. It could just mean you grow up to then be lesbian or gay. It doesn't have to always be about being trans. Did you want to come back on that, Jeevan? No, I think, look, I think the, the position is that actually, one thing I'm still very glad about is the fact that we have moved so far on this so quickly, in the sense of, you know, when I was much younger, even being a homosexual was something that was kind of frowned upon amongst older generations. And it seems now we've become very accepting of, of those who are transgender. We are trying to be tolerant, we're trying to be kind. I think also realising there are um, difficulties and debates and discussions that have to be had. And I'm, you know, hoping that we can do so in a respectful way. And I think we have done, by the way. And I think we should, like, continue in that spirit. Yeah, I just, you know, this notion of be kind. Mm. I want to be kind. You are kind. Thank you, Jeevan. <laughs> uh, can I have that on my gravestone, please? Jeevan <laughs> says, I am kind, so I'll take that. It's good enough for me. But there is surely a limit to where, because I know a lot of the younger generation today, they will say, well, people can be who they want to be, and, you know, who, you why? Can't. And I just think that's fine, but there are some basic things that are just simple facts. You might not like them, but they're simple, basic facts. Biological sex, for me, is a simple, basic fact. And when I start thinking, well, people can be whoever they want and identify however they want, where is the line to this? Is, an, is that you're saying you're proud and pleased of the progress that we've made. We've got uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of young children on a waiting list for Tavistock Clinic, where potentially they're going to be prescribed with hormones, you know, all manner of things that have an imp a real impact on these children. And I worry for them, Jeevan. This is coming from a place of worry. I understand. I think, actually, there are, like, some very uh, difficult questions around here, and I don't think it's as easy as me just saying let's all be kind and respectful. I think there are some really difficult decisions and issues here. I think I'm hoping that we get to a place where we have kind of those debates and discussions in a, in a way and in a depth that kind of should be afforded it. And it's I'm, hard to I'm do hoping that. for... It's hard to do that when there are really extreme people, like those within Stonewall, that are in positions of moral authority over people. Um, because if you don't subscribe to what Stonewall says, that means you're a transphobe um, nowadays. And it's hard to be kind and understanding to people that want access to children and want to fill their mind with rubbish, like you can change your gender to be whatever you want to be at whatever age you want. That's not reality. 
and it's dangerous. It's manipulating children into believing things that aren't true. It's almost like when children um, think that they've got an imaginary friend and the parents there telling them that the imaginary friend is real just because they want it to be. That's really not how life works. And I'm personally tired of being kind to people that aren't kind, actually, to people that have a different opinion, specifically women who are impacted by this extreme gender ideology, but also people that think that those who disagree with them are intrinsically evil and there's just something morally wrong with them. I, I'm, I'm sick of being understanding with these types of people because they're not understanding towards me. Um, Stonewall did put a corrective um, statement out, by the way, on their own Twitter. Um, they wanted to clarify what they meant. You can view it yourself uh, at their Stonewall Twitter account in full. It's quite long. Uh, but basically what they're saying is that they believe that all young children should be able to play, explore and learn about who they are and the world around them without having adult ideas imposed on them. Um, I would say, Stonewall, then you need to kind of lead by example there with your own words because Lots of this is very much adult ideas being imposed on children, and it makes me worry for these children, I have to say. Steve says, the best way to protect our children is to prevent Stonewall from having any influence on government policy at all. Uh, Steve, I could not agree with you uh, more if you were here. I'd high-five you with both hands, I can tell you that. Uh, Ray says a three-year-old hasn't got a clue uh, about some of this stuff. These ridiculous proposals to influence babies, children are borderline child abuse. Keith says, please, uh, can't we just let small children have fun and enjoy being alive? The world's a confusing enough place once we start getting older. You're not wrong there. Um, James says, to me, this is a form of child abuse. I have to say that sentiment is coming through thick and fast. Bailey says, a child of two is just about walking and talking, never mind learning their transgender exactly. identity. Dave says, why are Stonewall uh, getting taxpayers cash to help fund them. Robert says, if you and the rest of the media would shut up about it, it would go away. Robert, I have to say, this is a view uh, shared by many. I think Jeevan would probably love not to be talking about this topic. There is a sense out there from people that say if the media stopped talking about it, it wouldn't be a thing. Well, I have to say, uh, I personally believe that adults have a responsibility and a duty of care to children. Um, so, unfortunately, I absolutely won't stop talking about some of the things that are going on in our nurseries, in our schools. I think some of it is deeply inappropriate, and the last thing that we should be doing is turning a blind eye to it and ignoring it. However, on Jubes and Co, I do like respectful disagreement. So, Robert, you are entirely uh, within your rights to disagree with me. Right, uh, let's move on, shall we? New research has found that just 1% of Conservative MPs come from a working-class background. The Institute for Public Policy Research say 13% of Labour MPs had a working-class job before they were elected. That figure, though, has halved since the 80s. Uh, earlier on today, get this, I found this very odd indeed, Nadine Dorries on Twitter pointed out the following. Uh, this is a tweet for those of you listening, not watching. She says, Liz Truss wears earrings that cost around £4.50 uh, from Claire's accessories, she says. Uh, meanwhile, Rishi Sunak wore expensive Prada shoes on a building site uh, and owns a suit that costs £3,500. So she's basically pitting one against the other there in uh, the tweet, talking about how much shoes and earrings cost. And also, if we look at this, well, this is something Rishi Sunak himself said in a documentary back in 2001. 
I have friends who are aristocrats, I have friends who are upper class, I have friends who are, you know, working class, but I'm not working class, but I mix and match and then I go to see kids from an inner city state school and tell them, you know, to apply to Oxford and talk to them about people like me and then I shock them at the end of chatting to them for half an hour and tell them I was at Winchester and, you know, one of my best friends is from Eton or whatever, you know, and, and then they're like, oh, okay. Oh, okay. Um, so, yeah, as friends from working class, well, not really working class, does any of this matter? Does it matter if you want to be an MP, or indeed the Prime Minister, by the way, whether you're working class or not? Firstly, the problem with this research is it, it says working class jobs, and, I mean, I'm not really sure what that actually means or actually proves, because you could be... You know, a Conservative MP actually criticised this and said that you could have worked as a bloody coal miner ten years ago since stops, and then you wouldn't have actually been included in this research. So that is a big problem with it. But I think the, the general point is, look, it shouldn't matter on the whole, um, because I don't think where you come from should impact your ability to have empathy for people um, from different backgrounds that have different issues. However, big however, as someone from a working-class background myself and as someone who is a Conservative from a working-class background, I do feel as though there is a slight disconnect between the people that are making the policies, um, and whether that be on the left or the right, actually, and the people that are actually impacted by those policies. A lot of these politicians that are making the policies have no clue what it's like, really, to go to a job centre, for example, have no clue how actually difficult it is um, to claim disability benefits, for example. Uh, my mum is disabled, has to claim disability benefits. Luckily, I'm able to help her out a bit now, now that I'm older, but still, the way she is treated as a genuine disabled person, I think, is absolutely disgusting. A lot of these politicians don't understand that, so therefore can't really, even though they may have the greatest intentions, develop policy that actually help the people that they want to help. But I think that's a fair point that, you know, anyone can really make. It doesn't matter what side of the political aisle you're on. Stephen? I think we should make a greater... Uh, a great effort to do so. I think exactly the same reason that Dominique has identified, like how it's not the fact that any individual is is individually wrong because they come from a certain background. It's that actually, as a whole, is Parliament reflecting the society in which we live in, and therefore does it represent their interest? And particularly think about this cost of living crisis. You know, incredibly difficult. But if you're an MP on eighty thousand, it's very difficult to think about what it would mean for someone on thirty k on an average wage. And I think those are some real worries, especially around. I think one thing also Brexit as well, there's probably a reason why, for example, uh, we had this huge shock, because actually Parliament may not have been as reflective as it should have been at the country at large. I think one thing that the last Labour well, government... you say we did... got a shock. I mean, you might have got a shock. <laughs> I didn't think Brexit was a shock. Talking to the people that I know, I, don't, I, I actually don't think I know anyone, mm -hmm. apart from maybe one or two people at the time, that voted Remain. So you say it was a shock. I say it wasn't, and maybe this is reflective of what we're saying. Maybe it was because Parliament didn't kind of grasp it or reflect those kind of views that it was indeed a shock to so many. I think that's right. I think it's actually a shock to, like, what was, uh, what was at that point basically elite consensus, right? The elite thought a certain way about the world, and then when Brexit became a live issue, they realised, well, they kind of thought it would be very, very close, but there was a reason why the views in Parliament were, were very different to the country at large, and I wonder why that was. And I think it should be. We should make a real effort to do so. One thing I think we did uh, very well, or getting much better at certainly, is in the number of women in Parliament. You know, more than half the Labour Party are now women, 35% overall. I think we made a massive effort to do so, and we got there. And I think actually the same thing we should do being people from socioeconomic backgrounds as well, and making that effort to get them involved. What does that effort mean? Sorry, Dominic. Yeah, no, you yeah. Yeah. Are you want? Are you advocating quotas? 
I'm not advocating quotas. I'm saying that it would generally be the Labour Party because, of course, they are like the centre-left party. So they will end up invariably reflecting those who are on lower middle incomes. Uh, but it's up for them to kind of encourage those people to kind of come forward. They did so with all women shortlist. Now, I'm not saying you would have an all-working-class shortlist, but there Ooh. should be certainly encouragement. Yeah. I, think all I mean, women's trade unions. Yeah, I, didn't, I, I don't like that. I do think the overarching principle should be you should pick, you know, whoever's best at the actual job, not just because they have um, a particular characteristic, though I do understand the sentiment. But I think one point is important here, and it's that just because you come from a particular background, whether that be, you know, you being black, working class, gay, lesbian, whatever, um, I don't think that necessarily means that you are the best person um, to represent someone. For example, someone like Nigel Farage, who connected um, extremely well with working-class people across this country, he's someone that comes from immense privilege and, and, and wealth, yet he was able to connect more with people from working-class backgrounds than, say, someone like Keir Starmer, who comparatively does have more of a working-class background than Nigel Farage. So I think part of it is is actually, again, listening to the concerns of people and actually making an effort to understand them. And I think that there is sort of a consensus at the moment amongst the establishment that they know best and that the plebs at the bottom don't know best. They don't actually know what's good for them. And that's why we need the elites in Parliament making all of the decisions. And I think we're only just really starting to push back on that, as was seen with Brexit. And I think it's a good thing. I'd agree, though, with the... So when I said not having... I agree the best person for the job, by the way. One thing I think of is someone like Angela Rayner. Like, I'm incredibly impressed by Angela Rayner. I think she's a, a brilliant person, not just an aspiring story, but an incredibly talented politician. A great acuity, um, a great way of speaking, and everything... A can... great way of speaking? I think she has a great way of getting I like Angela Rayner. I like Even. Angela Rayner. <laughs> and I will say this, I think my, the thing I'm saying is that, actually, we should be encouraging more Angela Rayners into Parliament. My worry is not that they're not the best, my worry is the barriers that face them. It's quite expensive to run for Parliament, it's quite difficult to get yourself involved. It's also, on, do you what, take a what, risk to get there? What are, you, what are you talking about? So, if when you run for Parliament, as I've done twice, Yes, you need to fund it, but I'm assuming that you're talking about people going into political parties, mm -hmm. in which case the cost will be borne by the political parties. If you decide that you want to run, you don't have to scrabble around your piggy bank to try and fund your own campaign. That is the, you have huge monumental party machines that will kick in uh, to help you do that. Anyway, look at that. I just realised the time. I was just about to start ranting about who can apply for Parliament or not. Anyway, by the way, you mentioned Labour, Jeevan, having all-woman shortlist. Can you imagine, ladies and gentlemen, the knots that they tie themselves into in 2024 trying to have an all-woman shortlist? Goodness gracious me. <laughs> right, where, where would they even begin with that? I'll leave that alone for another day. Uh, Margaret says, I hate using that word class, Michelle. Please, can you define the working class? To me, we're all working class. I agree with that. John says, Michelle, have you got any working class mates now that you've made it? John, to have any mates at all would be a fine thing. That's what I say. <laughs> right, that's all I've got time for. Have yourselves a fantastic evening and I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>